from Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to Hollywood Unscripted. I'm Jenny Curtis, and today we are virtually sitting down with filmmaker Ogi Ibuno, who just released her stunning directorial debut, a documentary called Invisible Portraits. Ogi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We are recording this a little less than a week after the release of the film. What have the past few days been like for you? Um, busy. <laughs> it's felt like a whirlwind in one of the most beautiful ways. I've been working on this for the past two and a half years, almost three years this October. And to see it being birthed into the world seems surreal in a way. And I'm still trying to process it all. But yeah, it's been a beautiful experience and one that I will remember for the rest of my life, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. So two and a half, three years ago is when this started. What was the seed of the idea? How did this begin? I mean, it's so many layers to it. I used to teach yoga before I got into filmmaking. And six years ago, I was in a yoga meditation and I got this vision or idea that I would do a documentary on Black girls. But at the time, like I had no experience in filmmaking, like I was a yoga teacher. So when the idea or vision came, I was like, "Okay, Ogie, calm down. This is not it. And I ended up leaving yoga three years after that. Well, four years after that, rather, to pursue filmmaking. And after I had been with Radon Films, which is owned by Jet Doty and Colin Firth, I was with them for about three and a half, four years. And when I left Rain Dog Films, I moved back to L.A. from London. And there was this woman that I met at a charity event, maybe like three months before. And she sent me a text. And basically, she was just like, hey, really random. I know I just met you, but I met lunch with a friend. And he has this idea. And I immediately thought of you. So I don't even know if you're in town, if you're available. But I would love for you to come and meet him and let him tell you his idea. And so I said yes. And I go to the peninsula to meet with this guy. And I walk into the cafe. And there's this like middle-aged white guy named Michael Meyer. And I walk in and I sit down and I was like, oh, you know, lovely to meet you. What's the vision? And Michael goes, well, I saw this YouTube clip of Isaiah Thomas being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And in this YouTube clip, he's like crying and his mom is, you know, crying as well. And he's basically talking about all the sacrifices she made for him to be able to be where he's at today. And what it reminded me of is that Black mothers aren't celebrated. And I want to create something, whether it's a film or a documentary, that celebrates Black mothers. Mm -hmm. And I was like, huh. Okay, like that's interesting. And this whole time I'm thinking he wants me to produce it because I'm known as a producer, not a director. And I was like, well, if I was to make anything, it would be to celebrate Black women because I think that they're Black women before they're Black mothers. And I think that space and reverence needs to be held for that first. And so he was like, okay, if you can go create a pitch and pitch me the idea, if I love it, I'll fully fund it. And that's how it started. You had no intention on directing before, or was that eventually where you wanted to end up, or you kind of fell into directing because of this? I fell into directing because of this. I didn't think I had the capability to direct. When you really think about it, I think this also plays into the narrative of like representation and why that's important. There's not that many Black women who are directors, especially in the documentary world. And so I didn't even think that that was a possibility for me. Yeah. I thought that producing would be it. And I thought at some point I'll get back into wellness and yoga. So directing definitely found me. And you did a really beautiful job. I'd love to hear about your process in creating the structure of the film and how you came up with the flow. Yeah. So in order to make the film, I committed myself to about eight or nine months of research where I dedicated six days a week, 14 hour days to me just reading everything I could about Black women 
reading every book I can find written by Black women and just really diving into Black culture in America, especially Black women's culture in America. So it was a lot of reading books, going to archive centers, like reading slave narratives, just diving into the history of this country. And in doing so, randomly one day, like I just got this idea to have a few of my friends just text every Black man that we knew. And I was like, okay, listen, let's just text them and say, if you can describe the Black woman in three words, what would it be? And let's just see what they say back. And so I got back about 100 responses and I had this big white sheet of paper and I just wrote every response down. So if I got angry 35 times, I wrote it down 35 times. If I got beautiful 25 times, I wrote it down 25 times. And so I was in the research about a month and a half later and I kept being like, why did I do that? Like, that was so weird because I kept looking at this sheet with all these words. And about a month and a half later, I was looking at the sheet and these three words kept popping up for me off the page, which was hurt, resilient and beautiful. And so I was like, oh, Okay, like, let me try to tell this narrative through these three words. Mm -hmm. And so when it came to the hurt aspect, all the research that I had done, it led me to discover that Black women had been hurt in like a three-dimensional way, which was the physical hurt, which is the rape and, you know, the medical apartheid and experimenting on Black women's bodies. And then the emotional hurt, which is the labeling of Black women, everything from the mammy to the welfare queen to the Jezebel. And then the third aspect of it for hurt was the emotional hurt. Like once you've been hurt by a society in a physical and mental way, how do you then start to see yourself as a Black woman? How do you then start to relate to other Black women. And also too, like, how do you relate to society as a whole when you've been hurt in these three different dimensions? And then I wanted to dive into the resiliency of Black women through all the research that I read and how resiliency could be used as a double-edged sword, right? It could be, you know, you're so resilient, we don't have to care how we treat you, which is the dehumanizing part. Or it could be, you know, I have to be resilient to get to the next day so that they don't break me. And I wanted to explore that. And then I wanted to dive into how faith had played a huge role in the resiliency of Black women. Mm -hmm. When I was reading slave narratives and just books on lynching and things of that sort, what kept coming up was these women saying, like, witnessing my children being sold on selling blocks, witnessing my children being lynched my entire family being lynched, it was faith that kept me going. And so I wanted to really explore that in the documentary. And then in the beautiful aspect of it, how we end the documentary, I wanted to end it on a beautiful note. I wanted to end it celebrating not only just the physical beauty of Black women, but the contributions that Black women have made and continue to make to society. And then in it with this like call to action with the younger generation of Black girls. And so, yeah, that's how I came up with the structure of it. And I wanted it to feel like a love letter. Like as I was creating this, I was like, I don't want this to just be like a talking head interview. Like I want this to feel like a love letter to Black women. I wanted this to be me saying, I see you, I hear you, and you matter. Like, how do I make this feel like a love letter? So to me, I thought about the different ways of art that makes me feel like I'm witnessing or experiencing a love letter or a poem. And so for me, that was through music, creating original music for the doc. It was having a live painting that carries you through the entire documentary and poetry. Like poetry to me feels like a love letter. So I wanted to incorporate that into the documentary as well. Yeah. The artist is Victoria Casanova. Yeah. How did you find her? And did you know what the painting was going to be before she did it? Did you guys work on that together? Or how did that work? So Victoria Casanova is phenomenal. I love her dearly. And at the time when I realized that I wanted to include a painting, I just started researching Black women artists. And I interviewed quite a few. Like I even went to Texas to meet one. You know, like I traveled to meet quite a few. And Victoria was the one that I just fell in love with. Like I fell in love with the work that she had created two prior. Mm. I fell in love with her presence. I fell in love with just like 
the way that she wanted to create art differently. And so when I decided upon her, I was like, I'm gonna give you two weeks worth of research and I need you just to immerse yourself into this. Like a lot of it's gonna be hard to read, but I need you to meet me in a space that I'm in before we meet. And so I sent her about two weeks of research and then we met up after that. And I just said like, I wanna create this image where like there's this black woman like in a mirror looking at herself. And one side of it is the image that society has created. And then the other side is just the essence of who she truly is. And Victoria just took that and created what you see in a documentary. I mean, she literally, I was just thinking like a woman standing in front of a mirror, but Victoria used her artistic vision and created what you see in a documentary by adding the chains and the different words. And she's just remarkable. How long did that painting take? What I told her is that I want you to make this. And she's like, absolutely, I'm on board. And then I was like, I want to film you making it. And she was like, uh, okay. You know, typically that's like a private process that yeah. artists go through. And I wanted to capture that. And she was very, you know, she was very vulnerable with me and allowing me to do that. And so we filmed her for about five days as she painted it throughout. And it took about five days of just setting up a camera and just shooting for hours on end. Mm. And then the poet is Jasmine Williams, who was that original poetry for the film? Yeah. So Jasmine Williams, the same thing. I just reached out to quite a few Black women who were poets that I was following their work or that I had been introduced to. And I just fell in love with Jasmine, like just her presence and her aura. Like she's such a beautiful and vulnerable soul and she's experienced so much. And same thing. I sent her two weeks worth of research and was like, I need you to meet me in this space. So immerse yourself in this and then let's meet up. Yeah. And we met up and I told her the vision of it. I was like, you know, these are the three words and I want the poetry to carry the audience through it, through these three words. So I need you to create a poem for each of these three words. And then she shot me a bonus poem called Mother, which is what you hear at the very beginning which, I mean, Jasmine is just incredible. And then I told her too, I was like, hey, I want to film you reciting the poem. And so she came to set one day with her daughter and I was like, okay, I'm going to film you saying it. And she had her phone. I was like, oh no, 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 you can't use your phone. Like that would look weird. And so my DP, Jessica Young, who is remarkable and I want to do every project with her. She was like, well, let's just find a book. So we literally scavenged a hunt across the entire location looking for a book. And we found this book and we were like, put your phone in the book and then like act like you're reading a story. And so that's how we came about with that. And her daughter wasn't supposed to be in it, but she wanted to be near her mom as she was reading. And Jess was like, let's just film with her in it. And I was like, done, let's do it. And so that's how you got that moment. Then to move on to the music, Jamie Heath's score was unbelievable. How did that develop? I met Jamie eight or nine years ago when I moved to LA through a group of friends. And I did my post at Wayfair Entertainment. And the post producer at the time that was overseeing the project and working with me, this guy named Ahmed, we were thinking about different people to work with for it. And he was like, let's just do Jamie. We both know Jamie and he's a black man and he's just incredible at what he does. And so I met with Jamie, just told him like the kind of feel of what I wanted. And then he came back the first time I remember with this humming. And he was like, so this is like a deep humming that when you watch movies about slave plantations, when the women were going through these moments, these hard moments, it's like these grunts and these mm-hmm. moans that's seen as a form of prayer. And so he played that for me. And I remember tears just like coming down my eyes. I was like, you get it. You understand my vision, more of that. And so he went away for a while and created what he needed to create and came back. And I was like, this is it. I mean, Jamie Heath is just a remarkable composer. He's incredible. You talked about how your research phase was about nine months. What did you find that really floored you? What had you no idea about? How did the research phase affect you, essentially? The research phase rearranged me in the most disturbing and also, I say, the most beautiful way because it opened my eyes to how this society, what we're taught in schools regarding history is pretty much revisionist history. Yeah. I mean, one of the books that completely rearranged me and I think should be mandatory reading for every human being is this book called Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. That book, it cracked me wide open 
because I didn't know the origins of policing, you know, like when you know the origins of policing, you understand that this system is working the way that it was meant to work, that the origins of policing was built off of slave patrols and slave patrols were literally designed to hunt and kill black folks. And so when you understand that, people are like, oh, reform, reform, reform. We've been trying reform for years and that's why it's not working because it's not about reforming the system, but dismantling it and creating something that is effective for everyone. And so learning about the origins of policing, learning about the origin of Amazing Grace, like that, I mean, I was like, I would never sing that song again in my entire life. Yeah. That was another moment that cracked me open. And then also too, learning about James Marion Sims, the person that we label the father of gynecology. When you understand who this guy really was and how he got his claim to fame off of experimenting on black women and children and infants without anesthesia against their will, you see life so differently and you wonder like, well, who's writing the textbooks and why are they choosing to leave this part out? And it just makes you just start to question everything. We live in a social construct. Like I knew that already, but it really hit home for me doing the research of this. When you think about it, we're on this internet because someone imagined the internet and thought it to be true, right? Like we're on our phones because someone thought of an iPhone and imagined it to be true. You're in this denim jacket because someone imagined denim jackets and thought it to be true. And when you understand that, when you truly understand that like all this society really is is a social construct, we're living in people's imaginations. And so when I understood that, it allowed me to create in a very, very powerful way. So the book you mentioned was by Dr. Joy DeGruy, who was one of many of your mm-hmm. incredible subjects. And she starts the film. Was she the first subject you found and reached out to? No, she wasn't. I think Dr. Joy DeGruy was, she was the last interview of the scholars that we did. That interview made sense to start it off with. Mm-hmm. When I was in post and I was going through all the hours and hours of footage, I just kept going back to her introduction. And I was like, okay, this is how we started. How did you find your subjects? How did you decide who was going to be in the film? Did you have anybody you interviewed that didn't end up in the film? Yeah, I did. In regards to the scholars and authors, those are all women whose books I read when I was doing a research phase. And I had reached out to so many Black women that were authors and scholars asking them to be a part of this. And so the women that you see that are part of like the experts were the ones who said yes and who books I read who moved me in such powerful ways. And in regards to the everyday women and the girls, at the time I had my assistant reach out to different nonprofits in LA that served Black communities and Black families. And so one of the centers that I went to was the WLCAC, which is in Watts. And Sheila Thomas, who's in the documentary, is the executive director of that center. And I remember sitting with her and telling her my vision. And she looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said, absolutely, like this needs to be done. But she also said, let me be very clear. People come to these communities and exploit their stories all the time. And they never see them again or never hear from them again. And they just take their stories and manipulate it. And knowing that, I can introduce you to these women and girls, but it's solely up to them for them to say yes. And it's up to you to create space for them to trust you that you won't do that. And I was like, absolutely. And so I spent the time getting to know these women and girls. And I made it very clear at the very beginning that there was no obligation for them to say yes. More so, this was just me wanting to know them, A, and know their stories. And then if they heard my story and what I wanted to create, if they wanted to say yes, then I would be deeply honored and in deep gratitude to them. But there was no obligation. So I got to know them. I got to build rapport with them and build a safe space for them. And luckily for me, they all said yes. That's something I wanted to talk about was on set, you created an environment that allowed such vulnerability. Outside of getting to know them once they were on set, because there's cameras and lights, how do you create environment that allows people to really shine through? Well, I had them come like hours early because I wanted them to get to know my crew. And I was very intentional on having an all-women crew. I knew for me that 
having an all-women crew would be essential to the production because there's just a sense of warmth and welcoming that women provide for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so I was very intentional on ensuring that I employed only women, which I did. It took a while (laughs) because A, there's not that many to be honest. And then when they are, like they're just all so busy. So eventually when the crew came together, I had the women all come in. And so they would come in hours early and just get to know the crew. So like they'll talk to them and get to know about them and their families and their lives. And then they'll just sit there for a minute. And so for me, it was really important for them to not only have rapport with me, but with my crew as well. Yeah. And I think that cultivated a space for everyone to feel open and vulnerable and for us to be receptive to what they had to offer us. I love that you mentioned that it took a while to find your all-female crew because that's sort of what we're facing in Hollywood and in every industry, that there are possibly less women or people of color to hire, but it's okay if it takes a while to find them, make the effort. Yeah. I mean, so many people are like, oh, just hire a guy. Like, you know, it took about three months to pull the crew together. And everyone's like, just you're waiting, just hire a dude and like fill the spot in or just hire someone. And I was like, no, like, no. And like, that's what we get told so much, especially in this town and in this industry. And no, like I wanted to give space to women, whether they were entry level, my grip was entry level to people who were mid level and to people who were seen as senior, like my DP. And so, you know, it was a very eclectic group for production. And I was really, really proud of that. The scholars were Dr. Joy DeGruy, Dr. Patricia Hill Collins, Dr. Melina Abdullah, and Dr. Ruha Benjamin. And then you had Bonnie Gaston, Sheila Thomas, Helen Jones, and Cora Matthews, who was, oh my God, her story. I know. I mean, you had a lot of gut punches in the film when Helen Jones showed up. Yeah. Helen, to me, is the epitome of the Black woman's experience in America. Her son, John Horton, was murdered by the LA County Sheriff in prison, in police custody. And they framed his murder as a suicide. And in doing so, they sent her like evidence of the rope that he used to lynch himself. And when you look at the rope that they sent versus the markings on his neck and the bruises on his body, it didn't add up, it doesn't even match. And so she's been fighting tirelessly for the past 10 plus years to get some form of accountability for what happened to her son. I can't say justice because justice would be John still being alive. She's been fighting for the past, I think, three plus years. Every Wednesday, she goes to the DA's office, Jackie Lacey, and she protests asking for Jackie Lacey to just come outside and talk to her and view her as human, to come outside and talk about how she's going to hold these officers who murdered her son accountable, to come outside and talk about the countless police killings that she refuses to prosecute cops for. And I mean, Helen does this day in and day out. And not only does she do that, she also created this organization where she goes to families whose children have been killed by police in LA County, over 300 families. And she goes to these families and she sits with them because she wants to tell them like what that first day is going to feel like, what that first month to feel like, what that first year will feel like without having your child. Because she remembers 10 years ago, there was nothing like that for her. 10 years ago, there was no Black Lives Matter. And she remembers what it felt like the day she found out, what it felt like the month and the year later. And she vowed to never allow any family in LA County to experience that. And so she continues to re-injure the wound every time she does it, but for the sake of some form of justice and the sake of community and just out the love of her heart being a mother and knowing what that feels like, she sacrifices re-injuring her wound to make sure that they're not alone in their struggle. And so, I mean, Helen Jones is, I mean, she's incredible.
A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co. Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that are... The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. You have several different generations throughout the film. When did you get each subject, and how did that affect the storytelling process? Was it always the plan to have many generations? Yeah, I wanted the doc to have as many generations and many different lifestyles and careers to be highlighted in the film, because I think that it makes it more relatable. It's one thing to hear from the experts and hear the educational and academic aspect of it, but when you see and meet these young women and girls who are perceived as everyday women, I think that it made it more relatable. It gave it a sense of warmth and welcoming, and so I just interviewed everyone. Like there was no idea of how to structure it all until I got into post. But in the process of it, my intention in going to it every day was that I just remained a vessel to the process and just remained open. And there were some days we had a production schedule, but then we shifted it because it was like, okay, let's actually go and film this. Like, let's ask this question. The process of production was very open and very malleable. You've said that we're in a time where people are listening and actively educating themselves. So you decided to move the release date up from this coming fall to Juneteenth. Yeah, because I was going to release it independently anyway, one of the perks of being an independent filmmaker is that after the killing of Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd, I realized, oh, this film is more important now than at any other moment I could imagine it to be of relevance. I mean, I think the film would have always been of relevance in a timeless piece, but it was even more so needed in that moment because I think, especially after George Floyd, there was this like deep yearning for people being like, this is actually not okay. I mean, Black folks knew what was going on and it wasn't okay, but I think there was this collective yearning of being like, how do we do things differently? And then people just start to question all the things that they have been taught and told to be true. And so when I realized that we were in this space of re-education and also this space of wanting to heal, it just made sense to me to move it up. And so I reached out to my investor and it's like, listen, I know this may sound crazy, but I need you to trust me. And at the time, it was two weeks before Juneteenth. Mm. And he was like, wait, what? And I was like, yeah, like, I don't even have a PR team yet. I don't have anything. I just have me and my creative producer that I hired, Nara Walker, who is phenomenal. And it was just me, her, and this woman named Jenny Chong that we hired. And I was like, we got to figure this out. And so I remember working on Loving, there was this publicist named Brenna who was Ruth Nega's publicist. And I just remember the way that she cared for Ruth through that process and the way that she supported Ruth in her vision and everything about her. And I was talking to Ruth and I was like, I want to move the film up and release it on Juneteenth. I know it's two weeks away, but like, I need to find a publicist. I need to just do this right. And Ruth was like, call Brenna. And I was like, you think so? Brenna's like really busy. She does like all these A-list celebrities. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know if she got time. 
And so then I sent Brenna the link to the movie and immediately she reached out and was like, this is phenomenal. How can I support? Yeah. And then her and her team took it to the next level. You know, they supported me and was like, this is a short time frame, but we can do this. Let's do this. We believe in this. Was there a specific reason you were going to wait for fall originally? I was just waiting for fall because I was trying to find distribution. Right. I was like pitching it. I had applied to festivals and they all turned it down. They were like, oh, this is really great, but we don't know how to categorize this or like what genre this is. It was a lot of that. And so I had to find a way to use that rejection as a form of redirection because the first two were like gut punches of, oh man, maybe I thought this was good and it's really not. I had to take a moment to really just recollect my thoughts and redirect my approach. And so I was like, I need to find distribution, but in case I don't, I'll release it in the fall independently. But I wanted to give myself more time to see if I can find a distribution partner to come on board, which is why I was waiting until the fall to release it. I'd love to talk about how the film affected you as you were making it. You've talked about it being a healing process. Yeah. In the making of it, it was quite difficult at the beginning because you're reading history for me for the first time, a lot of it for the first time. And so the first, I would say, two or three months was so hard for me. I dedicated six days a week, 14 hour days to this research. And then on the seventh day, which was typically Sunday, I would rest. Or so I thought. And I found myself not able to get out of bed for half of the day mm. or most of the day. Like I would be in bed and I would just be crying. And I, I couldn't even hold conversation or space for friends. Like I didn't want to eat. I couldn't do anything. And I realized, okay, this is not healthy. Something's going on and I need to get back into therapy. And so I put myself back into therapy and I realized that I was holding on to all these stories that I was reading about, like reading about these slave girls at the age of seven and eight being raped and having to give birth at the age of nine, reading about women who witnessed their entire families being lynched and couldn't do anything, reading about women witnessing their children being sold on selling blocks. And I was carrying all of that with me and I had to have a release for that. And for me, that was therapy. And I knew that if I was to finish this documentary and finish it in a way that was powerful, therapy and my mental health was essential. And so getting back into therapy did wonders for me because it gave me a safe space to process everything that I was reading and taking in, which allowed me to then go back into the week and continue to create, continue to research and continue to brainstorm on different creative ways to tell the story. And so it was challenging because I went through so many emotions of anger and rage and sadness and then disappointment because I was like, how am I 32? And I'm just hearing this for the first time. Like I felt so disappointed in myself for not knowing. But like I said earlier, then I had to give myself grace and be like, you wasn't taught this in school. What they teach us is revisionist history. And so in knowing that, that gave me a lot of encouragement, empowerment to take the blame off of myself and redirect that and say, okay, if you were taught that most of this society was taught that as well, how can you contribute to the re-education of it? Mm. And that's what I did. The title Invisible Portraits, the N is in parentheses. Can you talk to us about the thought behind that? Yeah. So the N is in parentheses because the whole idea is that this country thrives off of the erasure of Black women. Yet still, this country was built on the backs of Black women. So as much as they want us to be invisible, in the nature of it, we can't. Most, if not all, the civil movements that happen in this society, think about the civil rights movement. We know of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, the faces of the movement, but we don't know about the women who were the strategists behind it, the women who fed the communities and educated communities, the women who helped write the speeches that we know now to be famous, those women who were Fannie Lou Hamer, September Clark, Ella Baker. We don't know their stories, right? When you think about the women on slave plantations that were raped and beaten and had to breed babies for the master, this country was built off the backs 
backs of black women. When you think about the movement that's happening now in a social uprising, Black Lives Matter was founded and created by three black women. This country, when you know the history, was built on the backs of black women. And so for me, it was bringing into focus what I know to be true and what any historian knows to be true. And so I put the I in in parentheses because as much as they try to erase us, you really can't. We're the foundation of the society. Could you tell us about a time that you felt most invisible and then conversely tell us about a time you felt most seen? A time that I felt most invisible... I mean, that's most of my childhood, to be honest, because both my parents were born in Nigeria and me and my brother were first generation. And unfortunately, my father brought my mom to America and just became physically, mentally, emotionally abusive for years on end. And it wasn't until she had me that she realized that this is not healthy. I feel like she known, but I think having a daughter gave her the strength to leave a marriage that was very physically abusive on a weekly basis. And in doing so, she had to learn English because she didn't know it. And she had to work multiple jobs. And so she wasn't present physically nor emotionally most of my childhood. And I grew up very resentful because I yearned for that. I yearned for that parent figure, even that mother figure. And because she wasn't as present physically and emotionally, I felt very much so invisible. Like I felt that I had to be perfect in order to receive any kind of validation or love. And so most of my childhood, I felt invisible. And as far as the moment where I felt most visible, I think... I think it's starting to happen now in the sense of like, I see myself as this vessel that was able to get this story out. And even though I say that it's a moment where I feel most visible, it's not about me. Um, It's so much bigger than me. And I feel that Black women are starting to become more visible and that makes me feel seen. And so I would say it's this moment in my life right now where I think I felt the most seen in my entire life. As we re-educate ourselves and unlearn the revisionist history we've been taught, what are you hoping to see happen? And in, in 20 years, how do you hope people look back on this moment? What I'm hoping to see happen is that people actually do the work. I get asked a lot after people see the film, what can I do? What can I do? What should I do? And my answer is always the same. Like, that's not for me to tell you what to do. That's work that you have to do. I think people doing the deep work of self-reflection, which is hard, which is why most people don't do it. In the practice of doing the self-reflection, then the answers will come, right? It's in those moments that you realize how your privilege serves you and how it doesn't serve the next person. And in doing so, there's so many different ways that you can show up. Because what I need in regards to allyship and what that looks like for me may be completely different than what the next Black woman needs. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any one answer to how people can show up. I think that that comes from doing the work. You know, like I was talking to this one woman who was like, after watching your film, I really sat with it. And I reached out to my high school and asked them, what are the books that they're teaching in history? And can they revise the curriculum? It's in doing things like that. I would have never thought to even offer that as a solution, but that's incredible. And that came about by her sitting with it and being like, okay, how does my privilege serve me, but doesn't serve the greater good of all? And so I think that I'm very hopeful that when people see this film, like they sit with those tough moments and they do the work. And I think that we're in a space right now where people are open to that. So that makes me very, very hopeful. And I'm excited to see what happened 20 years from now. Like one of my goals is to create curriculum around this documentary and get it into schools and universities. I have universities already reaching out. And so I'm hopeful that in 20 years, you know, it'll be mandatory viewing in schools and universities. What was the moment that you realized everything was coming together and you really had a powerful film on your hands? Um, it was really after we picture locked it, because when you're in the moment, you're so wrapped up in it that it's really hard 
for you to be objective to it. Like my post producer and my editor was like, okay, I think we got something like this is great. You know, because I was working with them every day on it. And you're like, yeah, I think it's good. But then what about this? You want to keep adding more because you want it to be perfect. And for me, like, I think the moment clicked for me that I think this could be a powerful piece was after we picture locked it. I did a very private screening at Neuhaus. And I had a few friends and family and industry people come. It was about like maybe 50 people. And I was like, okay, I want y'all to give me honest feedback. Although it's picture lock, so I can't do anything about that. But I want you guys to see it and give me honest feedback. (laughs) And so after I screamed it, you know, in the credits roll, and we cut the lights on, and I look around and everyone was sobbing. Yeah. Like everyone. Like, I mean, tears pouring down. And it was in that moment that I was like, oh. I think I created something that could really work, that could be powerful and that could re-educate people. That moment gave me hope because I was like, if this room, as eclectic as it is in age and ethnicity and in industry, all these different people have the same reaction, then my God, okay, like this could be good. Dr. Joy DeGruy, in the section of resilience, she said, you tried to bury us only to find out that we were seeds, Mm. which I think really encompasses the message of the film. I have so much I want to say, and I don't know how to talk about it. So that's why I'm grateful for the film, because I'm trying to be better, and I'm trying to ingest all of the information. It's just so powerful, and being able to put that back out in the world and and allow Black women to grow and and thrive, I think it's just, it's really important. So I I just want to thank you for the film. Thank you. I mean, you know, your sentiments is one that's echoed across so many people that sees it, right? I mean, everyone from Black men to Black women to white men to white women. I think when you see the film, you've got to sit with it, right? Like everyone. It's interesting. I know people are like, oh, you're going to do Q&As after. And it's hard for me to say yes to them. I mean, I do, but I do understand that the piece that I created, you got to sit with that because the questions and the clarity does not just come like a typical film. I tend to say that I feel like, you know, this is bigger than a documentary. Like it, it feels somewhat like a think piece to me. And you got to sit with that. It's not easy to view that and then immediately have questions. Like, I I haven't met anyone that has. Most people have to sit with it for like weeks on end and be like, okay, now I can talk about it. Because it is a lot. It's a lot of hard truths. And when people watch it, you're grappling with the way that the film is educating you. But then also you're grappling with the privilege that you probably have had your entire life and not even noticing that it was a privilege or like that it affected another group as much as it did. You know, I do hold space for people because it's not easy to cultivate the right. And there is no right questions. Right. But I do understand that, you know, it takes some time. Yeah. I will continue re-educating myself and listening and learning. I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Any final words you want to leave us with? I'm just really, really grateful for the opportunity. As an independent filmmaker, whenever anyone shows any interest or support, it just means the world because you're not backed by a big studio. You're not backed by a big streaming platform. And so, you know, every ounce of support or recognition that this film receives just means so much to me. So thank you for inviting me in the film to come on this platform. It means a lot. I appreciate it. Ogi Ibuno, it has been an honor talking to you and anyone who is interested in checking out the film. Right now it's on Vimeo and I cannot tell you enough. You should go watch this film. So thank you, Ogi, for joining us today. And I can't wait to see where this goes. Thank you. Hollywood Unscripted is created by Kurt Co Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest Ogi Ibuno. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Derek Dick. 
Please make sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. And we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating and a review and let us know what you think. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Media.